0: Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, Romans 6, starting at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin... You were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin, and become the servants, become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to a life of fruitfulness, fruit unto holiness, and the end, everlasting life. Enable us, O God, to rejoice in these things, to strive in these things, to understand them clearly, and to apply them in our faith and in our lives. Draw near to us by your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired these words, that we might know the truth, and the truth would set us free. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This afternoon we will consider fruit unto holiness. John Murray says concerning verses 21 and 22 that they stand in conspicuous contrast with each other. That is like black and white. They show something very different. He says, verse 21 shows the fruitlessness, the shame, and the death which follow in the wake of sin. Verse 22 shows the fruit and the issuance of deliverance from sin. Two things could not be more different, could they? Last week, we looked at verse 21. We saw how the Spirit of God piles on arguments to dissuade us, to keep us away from the practice of sin And how there is no good, whether past, present, or future, there is no good in sin. No time, no place, and no person where sin yields good. We saw this as a rebuke to any who would entice us to this slavery of sin. Though they would promise us freedom, they bring us into bondage. We saw an exhortation that if we hear God give us so many reasons why we ought not to continue or to commit one act of sin then let us argue thus with ourselves to dissuade ourselves, not make excuses for our sins, not parley with our uh, enticements to sin, but rather, rather to cut off the occasions and temptations of sin. We saw how in God's moral government, there is always sowing and there is always reaping. We'll see this again today from verse 22. The end of these things is death. You sow a certain type of seed, you reap a certain type of, of fruit. God is wise, God is just, like begets like. There is a parity or an equality of causes and effects. A certain type of cause leads to a certain type of effect. You sow to sin, you reap in death. You sow to holiness, you reap in life. There is like in these things. Let us then, we saw an exhortation, sow the seeds of righteousness, that we may closely hear the word of God the doctrines he teaches us in the word, and more strictly follow his commandments in our minds, wills, and affections. We saw the apostle said, Be not deceived, God is mo- not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We saw in the third place that biblical salvation does not release us from the shame of our former lives. Still, when we think back upon the past, Our conscience condemns us and makes us see not that we're cut off from Christ, but that we see that those things we did are in fact displeasing to God and therefore they bring shame. We saw a rebuke to those who say you should only have positive vibes and think so highly about yourself. Forget about your past and all the bad things that you did. No, Scripture encourages us not to dwell on these things at all times, but certainly to recall them to our minds that they are shameful. We saw an exhortation that we should know the word of God so that we know what is shameful and what is not, what is worthy to be condemned in our actions and what is not. And we had a time of instruction considering the nature, nature of the conscience. What is it? How does it function? It works together with our mind, and therefore as we inform our minds, we are to inform our conscience we to listen to the conscience, not stifle the voice of conscience. And all this from verses 20 and 21. Now then, fruit unto holiness this afternoon from verse 22. We'll look at this in three parts. First, made free. Second, fruit unto holiness. And third, the end. First then, made free. But now, being made free from sin... You may say that these two words put together in the New Testament are the essence of Christianity. Once we were one thing, but, now, but is a turning of the page. This is something that's very different. It's an adversative conjunction, they call it. One thing was this way, but this is adverse to that. This is different from that. Now is different from then. Those things, he said, that bring death, that bring shame, that were fruitless. Those things are different from what we have now. And now, he says, being made free. Now, this describes the verb ye have. Ye have your fruit unto holiness. How is it that we have our fruit unto holiness? Well, here's how. By being made free. That's the idea of a participle. It's a verbal adjective that describes a verb often, as in this case, the verb ye have. How do I have it? By being made free. That's how you have it. And it's a passive participle. It's something that was done to you. You were made free. You did not free yourself. You were not born free. You were born in bondage and Jesus Christ by his almighty power he made you free. Now there are active verses in this. There are verbs that are in the active. The person is doing it. Verse 6 says, knowing this that our old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not what? Serve sin. That's active. We are able to actually serve sin. Yeah, we have a free will to serve sin. But when it comes to being brought out of that bondage to sin, it's done to us. God does it. Being made free, he says, from sin, or literally, from that sin. You remember that tyrant who reigns in death, in shame, in misery? That worst of masters who pays wages in eternal destruction, that sin is what you are made free of. The guilt and the pollution of sin, in other words. Then he gives us another participle. And become servants to God. This is a dual transaction. This is how we have our fruit unto holiness. Christ brings us out of bondage to the master sin, and Christ makes us what? Slaves. He brings us into better bondage. Bondage to God himself, he says. Again, this is done to us by God. This again is an aorist passive participle. Happened at a point in time, that's aorist. Passive, it was done to us. And it's a participle. It describes how we have our fruit. Now, here we have redemption. Redemption. Redemption is not absolute freedom from service, but rather it's the transference from one master to another. That is the Christian teaching on redemption. Now who are we made, and when we're bought with a price, who are we made the servants of? He says to God, to that God, the true and the living God, the one and only God. Now you'll note, as we've pointed out before, Verse 18 says, we became the servants of what? What do you see there in your Bibles? Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness in verse 18. Look back at verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience. Notice here. The apostle uses the words obedience and righteousness and God almost as synonyms in this passage. Now, they don't mean the same thing. They're not referring necessarily to the same thing. But notice that they're substituted for each other. Robert Rolick in his commentary on Romans says, for whether we say to serve God or righteousness or obedience, it all comes back to the same purpose. If you serve God, you will be obedient. If you're obedient, you'll serve righteousness. If you're serving righteousness, you're serving God. You can't say, I serve God, and then you won't do what he says. You won't obey. You can't serve God and say, but I'll reject your standard of righteousness. That's not how it works. That would be to serve ungodliness. John Murray says, bond service to God must exemplify itself in obedience to the concrete and practical demands of righteousness. That's why he uses these three terms, in other words. Our slavery to God is not lawless and disobedient. It is defined by his righteousness, and it consists in concrete, practical commands being obeyed. The second place, having looked at being made free, we now see our fruit unto holiness. Here's the main verb. Ye have... Having been made free from sin, having been made servants or slaves to God, that's how you have your fruit. And we looked at this idea of fruit, didn't we, last week? Last time it was the fruit of what? The end of those things is death. You had what fruit? What sort of fruit did you have in your old way of living? We saw from Proverbs that they would eat the fruit of their own way. We saw the idea of sowing lies and reaping the whirlwind. He said to sow to yourselves in righteousness rather than your lies. He talked about having fruit unto God from Romans 7. We saw that the fruit of God's spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth from Ephesians 5. We saw the peaceable fruits of righteousness... Those fruits which are unto the glory and praise of God by Jesus Christ, those are the fruits that the Bible discusses. It's the natural product. As that seed grows up and produces fruit, what kind of fruit do you get? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Depends on the type of seed that is planted. Men do not gather figs of thorns, do they, Jesus asks. Of course not. What you plant is what you get. Here we have fruit That is unto holiness. This word holiness, Freiberg says in his lexicon, as the process of making holy, dedicating, sanctifying, as the operation of the Spirit, making holy, causing to belong completely to God, or sanctifying work. As the careful moral behavior that expresses one's dedication to God, a pure way of life, upright behavior, or holy living. It is opposite to athar- a catharsis. Catharsis is when you're cleansed, a is not. You're not cleansed, you're unclean, you're impure. As the moral goal of the purifying process of holiness in right behavior. That is Freiburg on this word, holiness. Now, think about that. The holy temple, the holy place that God describes, how is it that it became a holy place? Was it holy while they were building it? Not really. It became holy when something happened. When they dedicated it to God, when they sprinkled it with blood and oil, and when God symbolically came down in a cloud and lived there, then it was a holy place. Then it was dedicated. Then it was devoted to God. So with us, when we come into this world, we are not holy. We are unclean. We are impure. We are sinners. We're dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath as the others. But God, but now, like I said, God has made a massive change. God caused us to be liberated from the bondage of sin as our master and he made us slaves of God. And because he did those two things, we have been sanctified by God. We have fruit now. Not fruit unto death, but fruit unto holiness. Please open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 concerning holiness. Hagiosmos is the Greek word, it means a thing separated, devoted, to a God, in this case, the true God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But of him, that is of God, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So this holiness, this devotion, this consecration is not something we do, is it? God made Christ to be these things for us. All of the benefits, all of the blessings of God's salvation, including holiness and sanctification, come to us in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one aspect, the divine work of sanctification, Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1193 of your pew Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Holiness is not merely God's work for us and upon us, it's also his work in us. Chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Furthermore then we beseech you brethren and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God so ye would abound more and more. Now in the Bible the word walk or pathway or the way it refers to the manner of living. How does a person live their life? What are the deeds, the words, what are the choices, what are the priorities of that person? That's their way, that's their walk. So here he's saying, there's a specific manner of living, choosing, speaking, thinking, willing, the way of life. That thing, that's taught to you by Christ. We exhorted you by the Lord Jesus, just as you received from us the right way that you ought to walk that pleases God so grow in that grow because you're not there we're not perfect are we so we need to grow we need to abound more and more verse 2 for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto what? Holiness. They're opposites. Here, notice, holiness is meets the practical demands, the concrete demands of the seventh commandment. He refers them to fornication, which is any sexual behavior outside of marriage. That's all it is. It can include adultery. It can include people who are not married. It can include sodomy. It can include all sorts of sexual perversity that God forbids by the light of nature and by the light of scripture. Those things are unholy, they are unclean, they're like being a beast, he says. If you're like the Gentiles, you're ruled over by your lust and your strong desire for things that God hasn't given to you, just like a beast is, that's the lust of concupiscence. The Gentiles, they don't even know God, so they behave that way. He says, holiness is the opposite So it's not merely this dedication to God by the Spirit dwelling in you, by the work of Christ for you. It's also what God works inside of you practically, changing and renewing you more and more externally in your deeds, in your walk. We call this progressive sanctification. There is what we call definitive sanctification, where you're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Then there's progressive sanctification, where you're enabled more and more to walk so as you ought to walk and please God, abounding more and more. That's progressive. More, more, and more as time goes on. This is the fruit of holiness. What does it produce? Not those things of which you are ashamed now, Not those things that produce no good fruit in time past. Not those things that produce death in the future. No, these things are very different. The fruit of holiness. Turn over four pages to 1197 in your pew Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm picking on you ladies today. You've heard of the daughters of Zelophehad so far. Now you hear about holiness for women. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and... What? Holiness with sobriety. Here again we see the practical demands of righteousness. The law of nature commands us that women are to be in subordination. The church is not a freak show where we violate the law of nature, and therefore we don't say women can get up and speak. Any church who claims that women can teach or exercise authority is a freak show contrary to the light of nature that's what he's saying God has created an order in nature and what does holiness do does it say I be holy I ain't got to listen to that law stuff is that what it says just the opposite holiness says women God has given you a holy calling his holy calling for you concerns the way in which you bear children in which you continue in faith in which you continue in love in which you continue in holiness and think clearly about matters. Sobriety. Not drunk with all the latest news from the fashion world. Not drunk with all the feministic trash that fills your mind with discontent for the order of nature. No. That's what the communists want to feed you. Oh, oh, patriarchy. we got to smash it. It keeps women in oppression. Yeah, well, they want you to be unholy. Of course, they're demonic. They fight against. They want you to be unclean. They want you to act like a man instead of acting like a woman. But holiness says no. You will act in this way. This is the glory of your femininity. You will be saved in childbearing, not in going up and preaching to people as if you had license to preach the word of God because after all, we're all one in Christ. No. Let them learn in silence. Let them be in subjection to their own husbands, not up there teaching and usurping authority. This is the life of holiness for women in particular. Please turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, page twelve sixteen, concerning holiness. It entails devotion to God, being indwelt by his spirit, that given to us in Christ. It entails the practical demands of righteousness, living a moral and godly life in accordance with his commandments, out of devotion to him. It has specific duties for men, specific duties for women, by which they devote themselves to the order of creation in its restoration by God's grace. Now, Hebrews 12, starting at verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Notice there the contrast. Holiness means when God chastens us. When he spanks us in his fatherly love to correct us so that we might learn to keep his commandments. We don't fight it. That's the idea there. The hands that hang down. Do I have to get a spanking? I don't want a spanking. And then make these feeble knees that don't want to walk in the direction to get the spanking. The straight paths as opposed to wandering out of the way, fighting against God who's chastening you, in other words that's unholy that leads you in the wrong direction he says to pursue in the light of these chastenings of god pursue peace and holiness because guess what if you don't have holiness if you don't have sanctification you will not have the vision of god in glory will you you will not he says see god If you do not long after holiness, you're not a Christian, period, full stop. No questions at all. You may be a Christian externally. You may be baptized with water, but you are not baptized with the Spirit. Without holiness, no one will inherit the kingdom of God. No one will see the Lord. And that's why he says, look diligently after these things, lest any one of you fail of the grace of God. And then he says, don't be like who? Esau who was what sort of person? It tells us, fornicator and profane. Remember from 1 Thessalonians? Fornication is uncleanness. It's the opposite of holiness, isn't it? But notice what else. What is profane? The fanus was the temple, the holy place of the Romans. Those things which were profane were outside of the temple, kicked out. They don't belong here. This is a holy place. Only holy people here. If you are profane, stay out. That's the idea of profane. Sometimes people profane something by taking a holy thing and bringing it out for common usage. Do you remember the son of Nebuchadnezzar? What did he do with the holy articles from the temple? What did he do? He got drunk with the holy articles from the temple. That is profanity. Taking a holy thing and making it like the Bible and making it the butt of jokes? Let's make a joke. I got a Bible text I'm going to make fun of. Ha, 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 ha. That's profaning God's holy things. That's what Esau did. What was the holy thing? What holy thing did God give to Esau? You are the heir of the Testament. You are the firstborn son of Isaac. You have the promise to Abraham Passed down to Isaac. Now it goes to you, Esau. And what does Esau say about that holy promise? What does he say about his inheritance? Food's more important to me. That's why he's a fornicator, by the way. His appetites rule his mind, not his mind informed by God's promise ruling his appetites. That's what fornication is. You won't listen to the seventh commandment. You'll listen to your lust of concupiscence like a beast, So Esau was. He was beastly. He was a logos. He was a brute. He was profane. He was a fornicator. And notice, this is the opposite of holiness. This is uncleanness, not fruit unto holiness. Now again, as we saw last week, you reap what you sow, don't you? You sow the seeds of lies, you reap the whirlwind. You sow the seeds of righteousness, you reap in mercy, God says. So then there is an end to this life of bondage to God, of fruit unto holiness, and the end in the third place, life everlasting. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 22, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Remember, we talked about this word end. We saw the end of those things is death from verse 21. You remember that? It's the goal. It's the finish line. Liddell and Scott in their lexicon concerning this word end say the fulfillment of, or completion of anything. They compare it to the Latin word effectus, when the final thing is reached. It's consummation, it's issue, it's result, it's end. The end proposed, the chief matter, the end of an action. Plato said the good should be the end of all actions. The chief good can be the telos, or the end The prize that was given at the games when you get your trophy. That's the telos, the completion of this. Freiberg, in his lexicon, says an achievement, a carrying out, a fulfillment as a closing act. You know how you watch the movie until the end? till everything comes to its completion? till you see how it all turns out? What happens if you get just close to the termination to the end? You don't know how it ends. Ugh! doesn't feel right, does it? I want to hear the end of the matter. I want to hear the end of the story. It's opposed to the RK or the beginning, the source of a thing. Please open to Deuteronomy chapter 31. The Septuagint uses this word end in various places in the Old Testament. One concerns the writing of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished. Notice the end there, the completion of the writings of Moses, their fulfillment, the final act has been written of the law of Moses. Please turn over to Psalm 16 concerning the end. Page 596 of your pew Bibles. 596, Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth, My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures, eis ta forevermore. All the way to the consummation of all things I will have pleasures forevermore. That's the telos, isn't it? That's the end. That's the consummation. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, please. Page 702. Other usages of this word end. Vanity of vanities. All is vanities, right? This whole book of Ecclesiastes cuts down all of man's hope in everything under the sun so that he can see there's only really one thing that matters verse 13 let us hear the telos of the whole matter let us hear the consummation let us hear the final argument let us hear the last act let us know the end result of all the condemnation of everything is vain what is the telos Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That's the end, isn't it? That's not the finishing of fearing God. No, it's just the beginning, isn't it? But it's the telos of the argument. It's the consummation. It's the final thing. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four. Look up at your leisure. Refers us to the end of all things. Then cometh the end. Then cometh the consummation. That's the final act when the resurrection of the dead happens, when Christ has put down all of his enemies. That's the end. Timothy was given a command to stay at Ephesus so that he might teach people not to blaspheme, so that he would refute their false arguments. And the end of the commandment was charity out of a pure heart and faith unfeigned. What was the fruit? What was the result? What was the end of that commandment? That's our word, telos. What is the telos of being God's slave? What is the telos of having your fruit unto holiness? What is the consummation of a lifestyle lived for the glory of God as dedicated and holy unto Him? Life everlasting. That is the telos. That is the end. That is the final play act. That's it. That's when it's all consummated. That is the whole thing. What is that point towards? What is the consummation? What is the end? But life everlasting. Now, he leaves the word is out of the text. He doesn't say is. Turn over to Romans 6. He lets you figure out that he left it out. It's called an ellipsis. It's a form of emphasizing the thing that follows. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, normally we would say the end is everlasting life but notice here completely omits it to draw our attention what about verse 21 what is the end of those things in which we used to live the end that tell us the consummation is what death but what is the end and consummation of a life of holiness life everlasting now in our new testament in greek the word life is first Everlasting is second. In our English, they switch the order, as is proper in English. Everlasting goes first. Life is second. It's the noun. But the noun is switched in the Greek text to draw emphasis to that life that God gives as opposed to the death that comes with sin. Please open to Matthew chapter 19 concerning this phrase, life everlasting. Page 983 of your pew Bibles, Matthew 19, verses 16 through 19. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have what? Life everlasting. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him which, Jesus said, thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What is the way to life everlasting? Well, you have to do what God says, don't you? You have to keep all of his commandments. You have to do it from the moment you're conceived until the moment that you die. You must keep all of God's commandments. And cursed is he who continueth not in all things whatsoever are written in the book of the law to do them. Look down at verse 29 on the next page. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit life everlasting. God has an inheritance laid up for his heirs, doesn't he? He has adopted people into his family. You don't come into his family by keeping the law, do you? You can't keep the law. No one would ever enter the family. And so here he says, there are people who have followed me. There are people who believe in me as savior and they will inherit it. You want to do some good thing? Here you go. Here's the law. That's the good thing you can do and you will inherit life everlasting. But these over here are forsaken by their families. They have left their family. They have come to follow me, believing in me as the savior. They will inherit not those who seek righteousness through the law. Turn over to John chapter 3 concerning this life everlasting, a very famous passage starting at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Life everlasting for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life everlasting everlasting life that's what god has designed for those who believe now we've looked at romans 2 7 in the past remember those who seek after immortality by keeping god's commandments by personally perpetually doing what god says in the law they will be rewarded with life everlasting. Then turn over to Romans 5, page 1138. The end of chapter 5, verse 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto what? eternal life same exact phrase by jesus christ our lord there are two ways to everlasting life there is the way do this and live that's life everlasting then there is the way of believe and you shall have everlasting life that's the gospel method the law says do and live the gospel says all is done believe and you shall live Doctrines and uses, then, from these verses that we have considered this afternoon. First doctrine Christian assurance of grace and salvation is, in part, founded upon the inward evidences of the graces to which God's promises are made. Let me just unpack that a little bit. God says, if you have holiness, you can expect the telos of that to be what? Life everlasting. So God makes promise to the grace of sanctification. If you have holiness, you have everlasting life. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 18, of the assurance of grace and salvation, and in the second paragraph says this, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion. Oh, maybe I'll come at last. Maybe I'm saved. Maybe not. It's not that, they say. Grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. Do you have holiness? Then you will see the Lord. Are you growing in grace and knowledge? Then you can assure yourself, if I have this thing that God says, I will have the telos, I will have the end. I will have the consummation. John Chrysostom said the following. Do you see how he points out some things as already given and some as existing in hope? You got one thing now and you're expecting something else later. You have one thing. You have holiness. What do you not have? Life everlasting. You don't have the beatific vision as of yet. In a sense, we have life everlasting. But not in the sense that Paul is saying. The telos, the completion, the end of holiness is life everlasting. Some things he says existing in hope. And from what are given, he draws proof of the other also. That is, from holiness of the life. Do you have the earnest? Do you have the life of holiness Do you have the evidence that grace is at operation in you? If so, you can have an infallible assurance that what he has promised, he will also give. That's what our confession is saying. That's what the apostle is saying. The end of a life with fruit unto holiness, the telos, the completion, the summation of that is life everlasting. Use one. God's people already possess in hand the grace of holiness. Remember, Christ has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and holiness, and redemption. All who have been declared righteous in Christ will be sanctified. Therefore, if one has sanctification, they will have the result of their justification in life Everlasting. This serves as a rebuke. In the second use, the Council of Trent, after the Reformation, they said, No, you can't have an assurance of salvation, or you will become presumptuous and carnal. You will wander from the way of holiness because we won't be able to hold over you that maybe you won't make it to the end. We can't keep you obedient then. This is called man's wisdom. The, the wisdom of the gospel is you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. You can be assured. You can mark it down. If you have the one, you will have the other. And they said no. They said no, you cannot believe that or we lose control. And that is true. They lost their control because people believe the scriptures rather than the words of men. Third use of this truth Draw our minds in consolation heavenward. Let us delight in the holiness that God has worked in us. Is it perfect? No. Is it sincere? Yes. And that's what we delight in, that God has worked in us. Meditate that there is a consummation to this play of grace, so to speak. There is a final act. When the curtain closes, there is a telos. There is a completion to holiness. Meditate on that completion in life eternal. And remember, it's the pleasures forevermore at his right hand, all the way to the telos. We will enjoy those things. A second doctrine the life of holiness has its end in life eternal. The life of holiness has its end in life eternal. Our Confession, chapter 16 of Good Works, paragraph 2. It says, These good works, done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren Adorn the profession of the gospel. Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship they are created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. That's God's design. A life of holiness starts in obedience to God's commandments. Faith produces those works It edifies the brethren. It strengthens assurance. It shows that we are thankful to God. It adorns the gospel of salvation, the doctrine according to godliness. It stops the mouths of the adversaries. And God says, this is the pathway that goes to Mount Zion. And when you walk on that pathway, guess where it ends? Mount Zion. The end is life everlasting. Bernard of Clairvaux He had these things to say about good works. He said they are the seeds of hope. They are the incentives of love. They are the signs of hidden predestination. They are presages of future happiness. That's where something tells you the wisdom to follow. Gives you information about something that hasn't happened yet. That's a presaging. If you want to know, will I have future happiness? The question is, do you have good works? Then he goes on. He says these good works are the way to the kingdom, not the cause of reigning. You will not have a ticket that says, here are my good works, let me into the kingdom, I will now reign with Christ. No. Christ purchased that by his death and by his resurrection, by his obedience all the way to death. By his righteousness and death, by his satisfying the law's demands, that's what purchases our title to reign. But how are you going to get to the kingdom? What is the way, what is the pathway that leads to the kingdom? Does it matter how you live? Of course it does. The end of those things, verse 21 told us, is death. But what is the end of holiness? What is the end of fruit unto holiness and slavery to God? The end, the telos, is what? Life everlasting. It is not the cause of reigning, but it is the way to the kingdom. Use one of information. We will see in verse 23 that this is not a wage God pays of holiness. It is a free gift of God. We will see that the telos of our old way, the wages that it pays is death. This legal way, if you don't do what's right, you must die. If you don't keep all the commandments, you will be toast. But the telos of our new life is in a gospel way, by the grace of God, through his gift in Christ of righteousness, wisdom, and sanctification and redemption. The old way gives wages in death. The new way gives free gift of grace in life. Nevertheless, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. This serves as a rebuke to every form of antinomianism. That's where someone says, Some part or all of the law does not apply to me because Jesus died for my sins. What is sin? Transgressing the law. So now that Jesus died for my sins, I don't really give a rats behind what the law says. That's what an antinomian says. Or maybe the fourth commandment doesn't apply. Maybe the seventh, possibly the ninth doesn't apply. We'll see. Maybe if the New Testament repeats it. That's an antinomian. Good works to a consistent antinomian are scorned. Why worry about it? doesn't matter how you live. You're either justified by faith or you're not. And if works can't justify, so the devil irrationally tells men, then they're good for Nothing. Can good works justify? No. Are they therefore good for nothing? No, actually. God says they're for many good uses. Titus 3, 8. Did you remember from our confession all the good things that good works do? Strengthen your assurance. Edify your brethren. Show God you are thankful. Stop the mouth of adversaries. Are any of those things useless? No. Every single one very useful good and profitable to men. The completion and end of such living, the closing act, is life eternal. Sanctification begins now, holiness begins now, and it is completed in the world to come. Of exhortation, then, in the third usage. If these good works, if this sanctification has its end in eternal life, Let us then perfect holiness in the fear of God. Ah, but that's the Old Testament. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, last time I checked, is in the which Testament? It's in the New Testament. Oh, he says perfect holiness in the fear of God. That's the New Testament? Yes. Let us then perfect holiness. Let us reverence the name of God. Let us hallow his name by being holy as he is holy. Let us keep ourselves pure from fornication and adultery. Remember, that's part of holiness too, isn't it? Keeping your lust under control. Ruling and possessing your, your vessel, that's your body, in what? Holiness, sanctification, and honor, he says. Do you recall, ladies, 1 Timothy two fifteen? She shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. God has designed a method of holiness. Let us then seek that holiness to be a holy people unto the Lord, to be purified from all that is unclean, not to be like Esau, who is as a beast ruled by his tummy, but rather to be those ruled by God Delighting in His promise and not selling it for a mess of pottage. And thus far, the explanation of God's holy word from Romans 6:22.